Well, good evening. My name is Jarrett Stevens. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Soul City Church, and that's the question that we're asking for the month of April. I think it's an important question for us to ask. Who is this man? Who is this Jesus that we celebrate at Easter just two weeks ago, but whose impact goes well beyond a couple holidays? Who is this man who, who has stood and continues to stand as the central and singular character at the very center of our history, our human story? Who is this man whose impact has gone well beyond the small band of followers that originally dedicated their lives to following him? Who is this man? So we started last week by looking at sort of the, the big picture impact of this life of Jesus and how it has affected uh, much of what we kind of know around us and the world around us still to this day and continues to do so. And this weekend, tonight, we're specifically looking at how the teachings of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus, continues to challenge and encourage and stretch and draw people closer to him. How is it that we are still 2,000 years later talking about what he talked about? And it begs the question for us to consider tonight, if we're serious about exploring who this Jesus is or following him with our lives, it begs us to ask the question of ourselves, what wisdom do we follow in our own lives? Who, whose teaching, whose wisdom guides and directs and leads our own lives? Because the reality for every one of us is that you are guided by someone or someone's wisdom. Whether it's your parents or whether it's your sort of opinion of your friends or whether Dr. Phil tells you what to do or whatever it is, all of us are gathering and listening to and being guided by someone's wisdom. And so what we want to explore is whose wisdom do we follow? When your friends ask you to speak into their lives, what do you have to offer them? When you get stuck into difficult sort of situations or choices in your life, where do you turn? Whose wisdom, whose teaching do you follow in those moments? So we're going to specifically look at the teachings of Jesus. Teaching that at its core level, in the days that he taught and still to this very day, teaching that it was so simple and easy to grasp that children can understand it. We have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. They love to hear the stories of Jesus. They know some of the parables of Jesus. They understand and can get what this Jesus was talking about as children. So simple, so accessible. And yet at the same time, the same wisdom and teaching of Jesus is so deep and profound that theologians have dedicated their life's work to studying and understanding the teachings of Jesus. Studying and understanding passages of Scripture, verses, even down to why he chose this specific word. So deep and profound is the teachings of Jesus that you could spend the rest of your life studying them and still have more and more and more to learn about who he is. And so true is this teaching of Jesus. So true that it is held, it has stood the test of time. Through several cultures later, thousands of years later, uh, many languages, in fact, every language across the world, his teaching still remains true. Many other theories and philosophies have been proven otherwise throughout the years, yet his teaching remains utterly true. Who is this man? whose teaching has had such an impact on the world. I want us to think about Jesus as teacher tonight and what that means for us as his students and ultimately as his followers. So to help us do that, I'm going to have you talk to the person next to you for a little bit. And here's what I want to have you talk about. I want you to think back to 
who your favorite teacher was as a child. Who was your favorite teacher? You had a ton of teachers. I don't even know if you remember half of them, but you had them. They were there. Who was your favorite teacher? And if you were homeschooled, it's like mom or dad. You got to choose at some point. (laughs) Who was your favorite teacher growing up? And so what I want you to do is turn to the person next to you, find out their name, and share with them who your favorite teacher was. And just real quickly, why? Why was this, above all the teachers that you had, why was this teacher your favorite teacher? So we're going to take like a minute and a half to do that. So again, I, we always kind of say this, introverts, don't freak out. Extroverts, don't take over. This is just a minute and a half, 90 seconds. I think you can handle this. Turn to the person next to you, find out their name, and find out the name of their favorite teacher and why. Go ahead. All right. Hey, hopefully that was a good walk down memory lane for all of our teachers in the room. Hopefully your name will be mentioned years later down the road. Thank you for the work that you do. Uh, you know, for me, I had a lot of actually really great teachers. One of the ones that kind of stands out for me uh, for kind of a unique reason was uh, Mr. Gage. He was our eighth grade American history teacher. And it wasn't so much anything uh, about him per se, but he did let uh, my friend and I do all of our reports, like, you know, reports we had to do on American history. He let us do them together, and he let us do them on video. Like, this is like back when video cameras were about this big and cost $1,000, and we would make these videos, because his dad had a camera, and so we would make these epic, like, Sundance-worthy short films, in our opinion, <laughs> to talk about, like, mining for gold, and why that was so important, or the missions of California, and why those were so important. And I remember, like, that was such a rush to me to be able to do that, and it really fueled my insatiable desire to be in front of people and, and demand attention, and so I'm thankful for that. I'm so grateful for that gift that he gave me. We all have maybe our favorite teacher. The reality is, though, for every one of us, there's about 95% of the rest of the teachers that you probably won't remember for the rest of your life and maybe can't even remember their names to this day. A few stand out for a few important reasons. But there's something about this teacher, Jesus as teacher, that demands our attention. And in fact, Jesus as teacher has honestly informed the world about so much of what we've come to accept as right and good and true in our world today. In fact, the teachings of Jesus have affected and informed people who might never otherwise call him Savior or Lord. But his teaching has had ripple effects throughout the story of humanity, so much so that it actually affects people who don't even know him. So powerful, so simple, So true are the teachings of Jesus that their truth resonates throughout all of human history. His teaching actually holds. And I remember a couple years ago, uh, a friend of mine was coming to town to to speak at a big sort of Christian conference. And and he was at a point where he had just released a book and it had done really, really well and kind of got national attention. And so I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. I want my friends to hear this. And he's a great communicator and I was so excited for sort of my friends in this world to know him and get to know him. And so I said, look, let's all go down to this thing together and we'll, we'll, we'll go to this conference and I want you to hear this person. I want you to hear what a great teacher he is. I want you to hear what a great communicator he is. And then so we piled in, got in the train, went downtown, did all that, you know, got in and, and we're sitting down there and he gets up on stage and I'm so excited. Like, you know, I'm proud. He's my friend. And I'm like, you know, I'm also looking for bragging points because I know him. And so, you know, we're sitting there and he gets up and kind of does his opening bit, you know, and kind of, you know, thanking people for having him there. And he goes, you know, this, this morning what I want to share with you is what I believe to be the single most important sermon you're ever going to hear in your life. And I remember sitting there going, that's a bold intro. 
I hope he can back it up. And I'm kind of looking at my friends going, it's really great. And um, I was like, that's a bold choice. And he goes, you know, I think if you were to apply what I'm going to share with you here this morning, in this sermon, it'll not only change your life, it could change the world around you. And what he proceeded to do without any commentary or anything laid on top of it was open up his Bible to Matthew chapter 5. And for the next 40 minutes, he read out loud the entire Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Thousands of Christian leaders were gathered at this conference to hear him teach. And he gives the greatest sermon ever given by taking the Sermon on the Mount and just reading through it. And the power of those words, I'd heard these words, I'd read these words, I, I, I'd, I'd heard and read this before, and yet, as he's reading, these words are still fresh, still powerful, still impacting to me as a follower of Jesus. The truth still holds. And as a communicator, I'm watching him do this, and I went, brilliant. You didn't even have to write any notes down. I am totally going to steal you stealing from Jesus. I am going... So if you'd open to Matthew 5 tonight, we're going to, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. We are actually going to study that together this week, just we're going to be looking at it in, in brief portion here tonight. How is it, who is this man that his teaching not only still holds, but still challenges, still shapes, still changes the world, even those who wouldn't say that they have a relationship with him? You know, so we, we, we have sort of the luxury of history to know the whole story of the life of Jesus. We've we, we read about, we've seen, we've experienced, we celebrated his death and resurrection just two weeks ago at Easter. But you have to understand, for, for those first followers of Jesus, they hadn't yet gotten to that point in the story. And so while you, those of you who'd call yourselves Christians, maybe, you know, comfortable calling him Savior or Lord, in his day, and when Jesus was on earth teaching, giving the wisdom of God to everyday ordinary folks like you and me, they knew him as teacher. In fact, oftentimes they would refer to him as teacher or rabbi. In fact, the gospel accounts record 90 incidences where people speak directly to Jesus. And of the 90 times that someone directly addresses Jesus, out of those 90 times, 60 of those times, they call him teacher. I mean, this is someone who is recognized as a teacher with great authority. And teaching was one of the primary focuses of his ministry. There was healing, yes. There was miracles, yes. Many people were witness to those, but not most. Most people came into contact with Jesus through his teaching. And when they would hear him teach, they were amazed because he taught unlike anyone else in their world. In fact, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, the same sermon that my friend stole and read in front of thousands of Christian leaders, the same sermon that we're going to be reading together as a church through this week, at the very end, in Matthew chapter 7, there's a very insightful verse that reveals the power of this teacher. And what I'd love for us to do is all look at it together. So if you would, please grab a Bible and grab a pen. And we're going to look at it. If you didn't bring a Bible, we got you covered. There's a blue Bible. It should be right there in your seat back or right in front of you, you can grab that Bible and turn in the blue Bible at least to page 679. We're going to the end of Matthew chapter 7, but in the blue Bibles it's page 679. And we say this, and we are very sincere about it. If you are seriously investigating who this Jesus is, who this man is, I couldn't think of a better time for you to be going to church. Because we're going right to the heart of the man that's at the center of it all. And if you want to know more about him and you don't personally own a Bible, here's the deal. We want you to steal a Bible from church tonight. Because we can't imagine you trying to figure out who this man is without this book. 
So if you don't own a Bible, please steal a Bible from church tonight. Would you grab a pen, though, and underline it? We're going to put it on the screen. You can have it on your phone, but you can't write on your phone, and you can't write on the screen. And I want you to kind of you know, journey along with us and take some notes tonight. This is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 28. Look what happens after Jesus gives this great sermon, how people responded to this teacher, Jesus. It says this, When Jesus had finished saying these things, Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were what? amazed. So this is, again, they lived in a religious culture where they had heard kind of a lot of teaching and a lot of other rabbis, and a lot of Pharisees and keepers of the law kind of go over and teach these things over and over again. But when they heard this Jesus, they were amazed. Just like I was amazed hearing the Sermon on the Mount for probably the hundredth time as my friend read it aloud. Still amazed at this Jesus. Because it says, He taught as one who had what? Authority. He taught as one who had authority. And this is very interesting. Not as their teachers of the law. So here's people that grew, and we have to understand, different from our culture today, very religious culture in Jesus' day. It was just kind of all around you and kind of a part of the atmosphere. They'd heard a lot of teaching. And yet here comes this Jesus, full of authority, full of power, full of wisdom, full of truth. And they recognize this is no ordinary teacher. He's not like the rest of our teachers. And if you know the story well at all, you know that they weren't too happy about this Jesus and what he taught about and who he taught to. And so that began sort of the seeds of their turning on him. So challenging was this Jesus to the establishment and it threatened their very existence. And yet what's so amazing is this very same teaching of Jesus that challenged the establishment would over the, time, over the course of time, over the course of history, actually become the establishment for much of the modern movements of justice in our world today. For much of sort of the corrections that we've had in our humanity, in our story, have come from, have been established in, have actually been rooted in the teachings of Jesus as found in this book the teachings of Jesus that are fully and freely available to you, the teachings of Jesus that you can walk out of this church with tonight, that you can go home and study for yourself. These same teachings have shaped much of what we have come to discover as noble and true and good and right in the world today. And I want to give you a couple examples. We're going to kind of start at 30,000 feet, and then we're going to zoom into our own lives. When you think about what Jesus had to say thousands of years ago that we are seemingly just discovering today. You know, in Jesus' day, there was really no lower place on the social totem pole than the poor, than sort of the oppressed, the, the overlooked. There was, there was just, they just had no standing. There was no sort of place for them. And so many times they were pushed to the outskirts of society, pushed to the outside. And yet here comes this Jesus with words that shifted and, and, and shaped our perception and our relationship to the poor. In fact, so moved by the teachings of Jesus about the poor, for the poor, that many movements have begun directly rooted to and and indirectly connected to Jesus' teaching about the poor. In fact, in this last century, people from all over the world and all sorts of different faith backgrounds would hold up one person as really the person who got it right, the person who challenges us, 
the person who sets an example for us for how to love and serve the poor, the sick, the oppressed, the under-resourced, the overlooked. A little old woman in, in the middle of a country where people had literally, the caste system had pushed the poor and the sick to the very outskirts of society. And this one woman stands at the center and says, no, 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 no. My Jesus has taught me a different way. Who knows who this woman is? Okay, that was not at all convincing. That was a setup. I said, little old woman, like you should have figured that. So I'm going to say it again. Who was the woman that stands at the last century as the one who really got it right when it comes to the poor? Mother Teresa. There you go. Very good, five o'clock crowd. I got you. You're with me. It's warm outside. I get it. I get it. I get it. Mother Teresa. And people would say, Mother Teresa, she is the best example that we have of someone who really cares for the poor. She changed the social consciousness of how we understand and love and serve and, and respond to the poor and the sick and the overlooked and the oppressed. You know what Mother Teresa would say? In fact, her direct quote was, our work here is only the expression of our love for God. This work for the poor that you all seem to hold me high about is really just my response to this Jesus who already taught me how to love and serve the poor, how to give honor and dignity to those who are overlooked. Her ministry, which is respected worldwide, comes from teachings like this of Jesus in Luke chapter 4. If you can flip over to Luke chapter 4, I want you to look at the very first sermon that we have recorded of Jesus. Sermon on the Mount is sort of the big sermon that we're going to all study together this week, but this is in Luke chapter 4, the very first recorded sermon we have as Jesus kicks off his public ministry, a ministry that was primarily focused around and built around his teaching. Of all the things that Jesus could have built his platform on, look at what he talks about in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 18. And I'm going to have, I'm going to pause, you're going to say some words back to me, cool? Luke 4, 18, good job. Uh, the Spirit, yeah, you guys are off to a great start. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, he says. Now he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah, so he's pulling a passage from the prophet Isaiah, fulfilling and completing the Torah, the Old Testament, the law. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the who? The poor. This is where Jesus starts. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the who? Prisoners. And these, again, you can't get any lower on the social totem pole. Poor prisoners. Recovery of sight for the blind, which represents the sort of the sick, the overlooked. To set the who? The oppressed free. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God's blessing, God's goodness, God's rule, God's reign in this world. This is where Jesus starts. Any good PR person would have said, hold up, Jesus, nope, nope, nope. You're speaking to the fringes. You're going to get all these people excited and all these people upset. We need you to go middle ground. Talk about heaven. Talk about things people want to hear about. He said, no, 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 let me be very clear about who God has sent me to and who I am not only with, but who I am for. It's the poor, the oppressed, the overlooked. Teachings of Jesus continuing to shape the great social movements of our day. And there is still so much work to be done. You know, the teachings of Jesus regarding the, the poor, the oppressed, the overlooked, greatly influenced and affected and shaped, shaped our church. You know, before we even opened doors officially as a church, we partnered up with an organization here in Chicago called Breakthrough Urban Ministries. Many of you have volunteered and served at Breakthrough. 
Breakthrough does, in my opinion, one of the finest jobs in the city of Chicago and in the country of loving and serving and giving dignity and honor to the poor, to the homeless, to the overlooked, to the oppressed, keeping in line with the ministry of Jesus. Our church, the city, this world has been affected by the teachings of this man, specifically when it comes to the poor. There at the bottom of the social totem pole is not only the, the poor, the oppressed, the overlooked. But in Jesus' day, for some reason, outside of God's original intention and design, women were held in a much lower status, position in society. And Jesus comes along in a very sort of shocking way and breaks all the cultural norms and rules regarding women. Women traveled with Jesus, were counted among his initial and and core followers. It was women who actually supported Jesus financially. Remember, he called all these folks, tax collectors and fishermen, to leave their jobs and to follow him. And so many times it was women who supported the ministry of Jesus. He honored women. He honored their plight in that society and elevated them to a status of equality as God actually created and intended them to be. In Jesus' day, a, a woman's testimony would not stand in court were she not accompanied by her husband. In fact, she wouldn't even be allowed to speak in court. I mean, someone could, could literally come up and steal Allie's purse from her and, 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 and could see it happen. Ben steals Allie's purse and is in court and literally has the purse on. And Allie goes, he's there. That, he stole my purse. It doesn't even look good with his outfit. Like, that's, this is so clear. This is cut and dry. The judge wouldn't even hear. He'd throw the case out because she's a woman. And if you were a widow, good luck. But isn't it interesting that at the resurrection of Jesus, the first followers of Jesus to bear witness to what God promised were women. Isn't it interesting that it was women after many, most of his followers had abandoned him. The women returned to the tomb. They came on that Easter morning to finish embalming his body, really preparing his body to stay dead. The reason they were there is because it had been done on Friday night after he was crucified, but it had been done quickly, and it had been done by two men. And so the women knew, if you're going to get it done right, you've got to go back and do it yourself. Friends, read your Bible. It's in the Bible. And so they knew, and so they went back to embalm and to finish the work that these men had started. And then they arrive, and there's an angel sitting on the rolled away stone of the empty tomb. And the angel says to the women, Where, what are you, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen, just as God promised. And the women are so confused, even though Jesus had told them this would happen, even though God had promised it for thousands of years. And as they turn around to leave, look who they encounter. Matthew 28, verse 9. Suddenly, this is, again, Easter Sunday morning, first people to see the resurrected Jesus are these women. Suddenly, Jesus met them. I love this. Greetings, he said, as though this was just normal, that he would be resurrected and sitting outside of an empty tomb. Greetings, how you doing? Greetings, he said. And now look at the trust and the safety and the intimacy and the dignity that they had in the presence of Jesus. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell who? My brothers, these followers, the disciples. Go and tell them to go to Galilee because there they will see me. 
And so the first people sent out to tell the story of good news, to tell the story of the resurrection, were women in a culture where that was not at all accepted or the norm. Jesus elevates women to their original intention and design by God, equal, equal. And I love how this teaching of Jesus has affected the women's suffrage movement, the women's rights movement. Again, this is things that we all feel like we've discovered over the last hundred years, but 2,000 years ago, Jesus was saying, no, 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 this is how it is in God's sight. Equally loved, equally created, equally gifted by God. And I love how we've seen our world sort of wake up to this reality. Sadly, the church sometimes seems to be one of the last groups to wake up to the reality of what Jesus taught 2,000 years ago. And I love how our church is a place where women are using their gifts of leadership and teaching and creativity and creating incredible environments and experiences for everyone. I love that our church is still affected by the teachings of Jesus some 2,000 years later. Again, Jesus bringing honor and dignity and bringing people up to where God actually created them and intended them to be. Not just the poor, the oppressed, not just women in his culture, but children as well. Now, children held one of the lowest positions in society in Jesus' day. Children were honestly good for nothing until they could bring something back into the home. They were just kind of a nuisance until they could go out and start making you some money or learn a craft or a trade or something like that. And so children oftentimes, many times, were seen as a bother. Were seen as a bother. And there's a moment in the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus in Matthew 19, where Jesus is trying to, you know, extend the kingdom of God and extend the will and the way and the rule of God. And he was teaching and children ran up and began to jump all over Jesus. Like he was like jungle gym Jesus. Like they were just climbing on him and sitting on his lap. And the disciples being very serious folks and realizing the reputation of Jesus is on the line. Don't, doesn't he understand how important this is? Began to literally pull the kids off and shoo them away and kind of treat them just like the culture around them treated children. And Jesus stopped and rebuked them in that moment and said, no, you let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And in Jesus' day, in the world around him, specifically in the Roman Empire, children held very low status. Orphan children held no status at all. In fact, it was common practice in various parts of the empire of Rome when there was a, ch a child who was left orphaned, maybe his parents were killed in war or whatever reason, these children would be kind of scooped up and thrown off a cliff and left in a pit to die because they were just a nuisance and a bother and they were going to be someone else's responsibility. And so it was seen as the noble thing to do to just end their life. And Jesus says, no, no, no. These children, these children get the heart of God oftentimes more than their more educated adults. These children grasp a childlike faith. They know God at such an intimate level, at such a real level. You know, my wife Jean and I are part of leading a family group here at Soul City Church. And it's, on, you know, every couple Tuesday nights, a bunch of us get together here, and it's pure mayhem. And there's a lot of kids and a lot of parents who assume someone else is parenting their kids, and so there's just a lot of awesome craziness going on. And this last week, what we did was we taught about how we are all created by God to grow. And we talked about the fruit of the Spirit. And we talked about how God has created us to grow these, fruit in our, these fruits in our lives of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. And Jean and I decided the best way to sort of teach that 
would honestly be to divide the parents and the kids up so we can actually focus and, and have a conversation for a couple minutes, at least the adults. And so somehow, by God's hand and design, I w- uh, ended up with the adults, with the parents, and Jeannie was with all the children. And I'm just going to trust that God was in that, and he led to that decision. And so Jeannie was with the kids, and I was with the adults. And for the first 30 seconds, we all just went, and just sat for a second and just smiled, you know, just like, it's good. No one's pulling on us or yelling for us. And, and we talked about what it means to have the fruit of the Spirit grow in us and what it would look like for us to be connected to the vine. We talked about from John 15 how Jesus spoke of what it means to be connected to him, the vine, so that we can bear much fruit. Well, a, a mom of, of one of the kids in, in our family group came up to Jeannie this morning and said, you're, gonna, you're not going to believe it. this is the, the cutest thing happened this week. Their little seven-year-old is having kind of a rough morning. You think you just tell. It just wasn't going well, kind of getting ready for school and all that stuff. And so she asked, you know, what's going on, sweetie? What's going on? And he looked at her right and he's like, Mom, I'm just not that connected to the vine this morning. How <laughs> <laughs> awesome is that? It's so cute. I love it. I love it. It's so sweet to see how a child gets the way in the heart of God. Jesus knew this. In fact, it was the teaching of Jesus, specifically in regards to children, that led to many movements that came far too late, but still happened nonetheless, where people began to wake up and realize, wait a second, we can't sort of treat children the way we've been treating them. And so there were child labor laws that were written for them based on this concept, this teaching from Jesus. A a couple folks in, in England began to see how cruelly children were being treated. And so they, together, Reverend Benjamin Wan and Reverend Edward Rudolph, got together and said, well, we can do something about this. And so they formed the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children based on specifically the teachings of Jesus. In fact, here in our own city of Chicago, D.L. Moody saw the street children that just ran and roamed free in the streets of Chicago. I said, this can't be right. My Jesus wouldn't allow these children to be ignored like this. And so what he began to do was gather the kids up and he would do a little like class for them, a little school for them on Sundays. Instead of sort of being locked up in church, he would gather these kids together out on the curb or in a room, wherever he could get it. And on Sundays, he would have little school for them where he would teach them the Bible. Someone might even call it Sunday school. This is where the concept came from. And many times he would have to literally pay the kids a penny to show up, pay them a penny to learn a verse. He was paying them off to show up for church. And it was a brilliant strategy because they kept coming, they kept coming, they kept showing up. In fact, people began to get frustrated and said, you have to do something about this. You can't just keep meeting with all these children. And so eventually, that little group of ragtag children birthed what is the most historic and important churches in our city. If you've ever run by or driven by or attended or worshipped at Moody Church, great gift to our city of Chicago, that church was born out of a handful of children sitting on a curb. Because someone got how important children are. And I love seeing, I love seeing how that's a value at our church as well. How Katie and her team lead Soul City Kids to be an environment where, this is what I love, I have friends tell me this, where kids drag their parents to church. Because they feel so loved and so known and have a place that they love coming to. A friend was telling me this last week. They were kind of pulling up the website for Soul City Church. And his daughter saw it and said, are we going to Soul City Church today? Like she knew just from the website that she could go there. And I thought, this is so cool to see. It's what's fueled and informed our partnership with Brown Elementary School. Because we look and we see, no, these children in an under-resourced neighborhood in what was, you know, honestly a forgotten sort of part of Chicago. No, our Jesus says they matter. They have dignity. They have value. They have importance. 
hearts, and so they matter to us. This is who Jesus is and how his teaching has shaped the world. Jesus gave a great call to equality for the rights of all people, all people being created in the image of his Father, God. You think about sort of the great awareness of movements that have happened over the last 200 years when it comes to even specifically the abolition movement, which we thought we solved and we're now realizing is far worse than we ever imagined. And there were folks like William Wilberforce who looked to the teachings of Jesus and said, no, it's not okay. It's not okay that we treat people as second-class citizens and slaves. People like Charles Finney in our country who begin to fight in the political system and say, no, 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 we have a greater ethic here for people valuing and, and mattering, no matter where they're from, no matter who they are, that they may be treated equally. In fact, their work would eventually pave the way for even more work to be done, for there to be equality for all folks in our country. So the work of Dr. Martin Luther King comes along, informed directly by the teachings and the way of Jesus to fight for equality. And that fight is not over. But the fight has begun because of this teaching of Jesus, the value that he holds for equality. From all the way from here to Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and you see the fight in South Africa with Nelson Mandela to end the evil system of apartheid, all being informed by the teachings of this man. In fact, one of the early followers of Jesus, the Apostle Paul, wrote these words in Galatians 3, 28. Wrote these words in the context of a class system society where people were put in their place, where people were held down, held back, looked over, passed by. He writes these words in, in Galatians 3, 28. Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. All of the walls that we would build to divide and to separate, Jesus Christ has come and obliterated and built bridges out of them. That's who this Jesus is. And it comes from his teaching, from his life. And it has affected not only his followers, but it's infected our world as well. Our idea of equality being so rooted in the teaching of Jesus. We could go on and on and on from the idea of the separation of church and state to the very scientific method, which maybe you learned in seventh grade and then forgot right after the test, was formed actually by a group of Christians who wanted to understand and better, better be able to look to and point to the miracle of God in the world around them. I mean, we could go on and on and on and on about how our world has been so greatly marked, how Jesus has had this undeniable, indelible mark on our world, through his teaching, his wisdom, his way, still affecting us and shaping us and challenging and changing us today. And so the real question for every one of us to consider, whether you call yourself a Christian or whether you're seriously investigating who this God is, is simply this. How will the teachings of this Jesus that have shaped the world shape your world? How will the teachings of this Jesus that have shaped the world around us, again, all the way to people who would never even call themselves Christians, their lives have been shaped and affected by the teachings of this Jesus, how will it shape your world? Whose wisdom will you follow? Whose teachings do you submit yourself to? How will the teachings of this Jesus shape your world? A couple months ago, I was having coffee with a friend of mine who, who goes to Soul City Church here, and he recently uh, began following Jesus. Kind of grown up, sort of 
you know, a little bit of religion here and there on the major holidays, but not much else past that. And so moved was he by this person of Jesus and by this invitation to life with him that he started following him. But he's kind of starting at really ground zero. Just, you know, this is all new to him. This is a normal guy, successful guy. I just never heard this stuff before. And so he asked me to coffee, and he asked me over his lunch break to explain it all to him. I'm like, Are you, I can't even do that on the weekend. How am I possibly going to do this over coffee? I'm like, all right, let me try, let me try. So I'm talking to him about Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus said and what Jesus did and how that affects us today. And we're just kind of walking through, walking through the sort of the basics of what it means to follow Jesus. And at one point, about halfway through, he literally stops me with all sincerity and looks at me and he goes, do other people know about this? <laughs> like, totally sincere. Like, is this the secret? Like, what is it? What is going? How is it that I haven't heard this before? And when I, I think as I reflect on his very sincere question, I think the question maybe beneath his question wasn't so much, you know, do other people know about this? But how come I don't see other people living like this? Specifically, people who call themselves Christians, who follow this Jesus, whose teachings are supposed to be the wisdom and the lifeline that we have for our life, what we actually have to offer to others. How is it that so many folks know about the teachings of Jesus, but don't really follow them or apply them to their lives? How is it that we've taken this great wisdom which has endured for the last 2,000 years, which has shaped and changed much of the world around us, and we kind of boil it down to a couple catchphrases, we cut and paste and edit to kind of suit and fit our lives, and then we ignore the parts that we don't really want to have to deal with. How is that, how is that possible? And I'm talking specifically to those of us who call ourselves Christians. What other playbook do you have to run plays out of? Whose wisdom are you following? Whose teachings do you submit yourself to? Jesus has invited us to life with him, to learn from him, to grow in him with him. And if you are at all serious about that, you have to come back and around to the teachings of Jesus. What did he say? What did he teach us? And I think there's two very important questions that every one of us needs to ask ourselves. In fact, I would encourage you to write these down because I think they're going to affect how we go about our homework for this week. Two really important questions. If you're at all serious about following this Jesus as teacher and Savior and Lord, two questions are simply this. First, you have to answer for yourself. And it sounds silly to even say out loud, but you actually have to wrestle and, and figure out your answer to this question. The question is, what if he really meant it? Like what? Okay, so we kind of look at this and go, oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's good. Oh, that's hard. Okay, yeah, no, I don't, okay. What if he really meant it? I know it sounds like a rhetorical question, but I think you have to answer that for your life. What if he really meant it? What if he really meant what he taught us about forgiveness? We love to keep sort of our list and our record, you know, of, you know, okay, you, okay, you've crossed me three times, you're done. All right, that's you, you. I've got my list of all the things my wife does wrong. I, I don't have a list for me, but I have one for her. You know what Jesus said and what he really meant? When someone asked him, how many times should I forgive someone? He said, you forgive them 70 times 7, which was a way of saying you keep on forgiving them. 
doesn't make what they do right, doesn't give them sort of power over you. You actually access the power of God when you forgive them. What if he really meant that? What if he really meant what he said when, when he said, if you want to be great in this world, you take the last seat. You take the lowest position. You don't get your hustle on and strive to be number one. You say, no, how can I seek to serve those who are in my world? Jesus not only taught us this, he modeled this for us, ultimately by going to the cross. What if he really meant that the way to be great is to serve? What if he really meant what he said about sin? How, how he would teach about how sin comes in and it works its way into our lives and steals and robs the joy and purpose and meaning from our lives. And Jesus said, honestly, if your right hand is causing you to sin, it's better for you just to cut it off and throw it away. Not literally, but pretty significantly, seriously, Jesus is speaking. If it is causing you to sin, cut it out, repent, remove, move on, bury it, leave it. It is not from God and it is not for you. What if he really meant it? How might that change how you view this Jesus? And second question simply this. What if I really did it? What if he really meant every word he said? And it not only had the power to change the world, it had the power to change my world. What if I actually really did it? Like I did what Jesus taught. Like I put into practice this week at work what it means to forgive. I prayed with someone this morning at our 11 o'clock service. She said, you know, things are great at work. I'm about to get a promotion. But the reality is I am having a real issue with my boss. And I don't want to forgive him. And I don't know how I'm going to move forward if I don't. What if she actually did it this week? What if you actually did it this week? What if you actually put into practice what it means for you to serve this week? To seek to serve those who are in your life, in your neighborhood, your roommates, your husband, your wife, your partner, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, whoever it may be. What if you actually, like actually did it? And not just nodded your head to it, but moved your hands and your heart towards it. I'm, I'm going to do this. If Jesus said this is it, then I'm going to practice this. I'm going to be serious about the sin in my life. I'm not going to manage it and make excuses for it anymore. If he said it, then I want to do it because I believe he meant it and I believe he meant it for me. And so I'm going to do it. What if he really meant it? And what if you really did it this week? Can you imagine how different your week might be if the wisdom that you pulled from, the teaching that you followed, was the teaching of this man who has changed the world. You think it might change your world this week? You think it might change your life? I'm going to invite the band to come up. and I'll, As they do, I want to let you know about our homework for this week. And then we're going to spend some time actually experiencing and worshiping this Jesus together. What I thought would be really powerful and impactful for us to do is to spend this next week focused on the teachings of Jesus and asking ourselves those two questions. What if he really meant it? And how can I really do it this week? And so here's the homework for all of us this week. Again, this works. If you call yourself a Christian, this is going to be a good exercise for you. If you're not sure yet, I think this is one of the best ways for you to try out and see if these teachings actually hold up to be true. We're going to read through the Sermon on the Mount together as a church. It'll take you about 20 or 30 minutes to do. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. 
Some of it may sound familiar. You've heard it before. These teachings have so resonated and reverberated throughout history. It's going to sound some of it familiar. But my hunch is and my hope is it's going to be very challenging for you and feel very fresh to you. And this wisdom is going to actually, from 2,000 years ago, is going to directly apply to some area of your life this week. That's how good and how powerful and how true the teaching of Jesus is. So we're going to read it together this week. Like I said, it'll take you about 20 or 30 minutes. I'd encourage you to do it tonight or tomorrow. Because your homework this week is to take one of the things that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount and actually do it this week. Actually put it into practice. Just one. Just one. I know some of you are Christians like, that seems too easy. You can do extra credit. You can do two or three or all of them. But what if for one week we said, okay, Jesus, we're going to take you up who you said you are and who you said we are in you. And we're going to put into practice and live like we actually believe you really meant it. And find in following your teaching life as you actually created us to live. You know, one of the last things Jesus said before he left this earth, before he was arrested and falsely tried, and before he made his way to the cross, was he gathered his disciples together and he knew how forgetful we are He knew how short-sighted I am. He knew how distracted you can get. He knew how prone we are to wandering to other wisdom. And he said, I don't want you to forget. I don't want you to miss. I don't ever want you to forget the reality of me coming to you and offering my life for you so that you can have relationship with God. So he took common elements from the table, bread and wine. I said, I'm going to do something here. I'm going to change the way you look at these ordinary things. This bread represents my body. And every time you take and break this bread, let it be a reminder to you that the Son of God actually came, actually came, was really here with us, for us, and gave his life for us, his body broken for us. And every time you break bread, be reminded that I came and gave my life for you. And then he poured wine. He said, this wine represents my, my blood. I want you to think about that every time you see it on the table. You think that there is a Savior who came for you and not only taught you about the way of God, but gave you the way to God through the shedding of his blood, the only perfect and pure blood to ever flow through human veins. He poured it out freely for us on a cross so that we could actually have relationship with God. We could have right standing with God. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's done. And I think if you're anything like me, you need to be reminded of that need to be brought back to that, to put Jesus back at the center of it all tonight, and to live this week like he actually meant it, every word he said. So we're going to receive communion tonight. We're actually going to participate in an experience that Jesus gave his first followers and that followers have done for the last 2,000 years. We join with a bigger story than ourselves tonight. And all you got to do is come to one of the stations. We'll have a couple here in the front, a couple in the back. You break a piece of bread, you dip in the cup. It's Jesus' body, it's his blood. It reminds you of how you can put Jesus back at the center of your life. And I hope that it's a powerful time for you. It'll be a time that stirs up some places where you go, you know what, I've kind of put these things at the center of my life. I put this agenda, I put this thing, and I want to put you, Jesus, back at the center of it all. So all are welcome to come. Over the next song or so, I would encourage you to get up and to come to one of the stations and experience the power and presence of Jesus through communion.
So I want to pray for us, and then we'll be able to do that and worship and sing together. But would you right now join me in a prayer to this Jesus? We thank you, Jesus, that you not only said it, but you did it. You not only taught it, you backed it up. You showed us and gave us the way to the Father. You talked about life and relationship with him, but then you made the way for us to actually have it. And you did it through your body and your blood. It was the plan all along. You would pay the price for our sin that we could never pay for ourselves. You would make the way. You are the way. You said so yourself. And so, Jesus, we want to follow you more closely tonight. We want your wisdom to be the wisdom that guides and guards and leads and loves and directs our lives. So we come back to you. We come stumbling back to you, fumbling back to you. We come back to you with our, our sin and our brokenness and our own agendas, and we lay them all down at the table trusting that you can take all of us because you've offered all of yourself. You held nothing back, so we don't want to hold anything back from you. So we come to you, Jesus. Thank you for not only teaching us, but for showing us. I pray you be with us now as we come to your table and give you praise for all that you've said and all that you've done. It's in your name that we pray.